How many of you have ever been to a parade? Okay, good. Look, I asked, I asked a rhetorical question that you could answer without much... Which, when, the, when the dignitaries or the princesses and the queens, the rodeo queens come in, how do they come in on the parade? How do they move about? I mean, aside from doing this. On a float or, or in the back of like a, like a convertible car, right? A nice car. Because it sends a certain message, doesn't it? How come we don't put them in the back of 1974 Pintos? Would that... There's no elbow room. First, it's hard to wave. Second, we want them to be safe. And third, we want to be able to see them. The story goes like this. We do that because the the convertible Camaros are much more impressive than putting them in the back of a brand new Aveo, even if it's brand new. With that in mind, let's take apart this Palm Sunday text, which, go, which, which Anita read earlier. Thank you for reading that for me. Um, in Luke, it adds a little more detail, and I'll use some of the, that detail to do this. But, so Jesus sends some people down into town and says, go get that donkey. It's tied to the left over there. He can't see it. They're going around the corners and all that. And when he gets there and people ask the disciples, what are they doing? They say, well, the master needs it. Because that's exactly what would happen if somebody came up and got in your car and started off with your car. And you say, what's going on? Well, the master needs it. And you say, oh, okay. Wouldn't you do that? So, so something interesting is going on here. First off, and so they get it, and then they take off their own coats to make Jesus this way, and he rides a donkey. Not, he, he, he's essentially coming down the hill in the 1979 AMC Pacer. He's not coming down the hill in the muscle car or the Cadillac or the... Or, why is that? Because the Roman emperors always come on a big white charger, a big white war horse. But Jesus comes on a donkey, not just because Zechariah 9 says he will, but because the culture says that to ride on a donkey means that he intends for peace. He's not coming as a conqueror. He comes as a peaceful emissary. Now, when they shout, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, every one of you know exactly what Hosanna means, right? It means save now. Save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, do it now. We want to be saved now. But what they really meant was what they really wanted was a conquering hero that would drive the Romans out and give them back their own country, and then they could be in charge and run it the way that they had always run it. Which, by the way, if you know anything about Israelite history, was not particularly well. We want to run it our way, even if our way's not working right. And so because of that, when he comes down the hill, the Pharisees come to him and they say in, in, in Luke, they say, hey, 
rebuke your disciples, make them stop saying that stuff. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Make make them stop. And Jesus says, if I stop them, the stones will cry out. Now, a little aside, this is a little rabbit trail into the text, but, but there's this spot in, this, in, in the Bible that goes this way. Um, first off, Jesus is, is uh, walking through the countryside and, and, and he's healing and everything, and the disciple and the Pharisees are testing him all the time, and he's saying, you know, it would be really good if you weren't slaves to sin. And the, and the Israelites say this thing. They say, we are Abraham's children. We've never been slaves to anyone. Now, I want to ask you a question. First off, weren't Abraham's children slaves in Egypt? So first off, their, their assertion is not correct, but they've sort of forgotten their own history. We're not slaves to Rome. We're not slaves to the Babylonians. We're not slaves to the Assyrians. We're not slaves to the Egyptians. We're Abraham's children. And Jesus says this to them. He says, if you were Abraham's children, you'd do the things that Abraham does, but he can raise children out of the rocks for himself. He can make rocks into his children. Look, my history goes like this. I was a wild child frat rat from WSU in the big party days I'm a rock that was made into a child. Do you understand what I mean by that? I, I did not deserve it, and there was no way that I was even planning on it, but, but I was a rock in his children. And so in, in Genesis, when, when God's talking to Abraham and he's saying, you're going to have children that are like sand on the seashore more numerous than the stars in heaven, well, sand on the seashore is what? Little rocks. So many little rocks, it just keeps going. And so when Jesus says, look, I'm not making them be quiet because if they were quiet, the rocks would cry out. What's he talking about? Is he talking about all creation giving praise to God because God is finally going to do the salvation that that all creation waits for? Yes, he is talking about that. But he's also talking about if I tell them to shut out, all those who will believe will then start yelling too. It's a very interesting point. The children of God, the leaders of the people of Israel say, Quiet. Stop praising God for salvation. The Romans are going to get angry. It's not, it's not done correctly. By the way, when you come into church, it's got to be all full of decorum and all that stuff. Shh. Don't praise that God too loudly or too wildly. Shh. But Jesus says, if, if I tell them to be quiet, the rocks will cry out. So the very next thing in the Luke text is he pauses and he weeps over Jerusalem and says, oh, because you didn't know the time of your visitation, 
the stuff that was done in you would have converted all sorts of other nations, but it's not gonna convert you because you wouldn't have it. What's going on with Palm Sunday? We go from swinging palms, not folding them this time. I'm not going to fold. I'm not going to do that debacle again. I just drop them all over the place. We go, they go from doing this, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to, to within the week yelling, crucify him. He's not doing it our way. He's not making salvation work the way we wanted. That's not what we meant. We want the Romans driven out. We don't want freedom from sin. But he's riding on a donkey, and this is how it makes sense to me. And I'm going to read this because this is a stunning surprise when what Jesus turns from a John 6.66 moment, which is the spot in John's gospel where most of the people following him turn away. Palm Sunday is one of those moments where people, they come and they're all excited and then they sort of walk away going, well, he's not doing it the way I expected, so I can't accept it. How have your expectations challenged your ability to accept something? Has that ever happened to anybody in here? Here, you don't have to raise your hand, but I'll raise mine for for you or me. My expectations of what this faith was like was so much different and they were you know save us now but so here's the text this is from uh, this is from Zechariah chapter 9 rejoice o people of Zion shout in triumph o people of Jerusalem your king is coming to you he is righteous and victorious yet he is humble riding on a donkey riding on a donkey's colt Now, there's two subtexts, two things going on around this that we almost forget. The first one is this. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem, and I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. That's the thing about the donkey's colt, is that he's going to remove first off all the tools of war, not from the world, but from his people first. Now, we know that that doesn't work in the world, does it? That if you were living in Europe for most of the centuries before Rome and all that, you would know that off the Russian steppe comes the next tribe or wave of conquerors. That if you come down, let's say you were the Gauls, well, the Gauls started up on the, on the Russian steppe, and they looked down at that nice farmland, and they said, Wow, that's nice farmland. They look like a peaceful folk. Let's go. We're a warrior tribe. We can take that. But being a farmer is a better life. And so within a generation or two, the Gauls are peaceful farmer folk. And the Francs are up on the step going, hey, that looks like a good life. Let's go take that. So what happens in the world when the weapons of war are removed from a people. They get conquered, don't they? That's what that is. So the Francs did it to them. The Germanic tribes did it to them. The Vandals came off the thing. And, the, and, and all, all of that. Look, the Picts 
the Celts, they all just got pushed as one warrior tribe comes in after another. And they just kept doing this thing. But what happens to us when our king removes our weapons of war If we follow his way, the thing that doesn't make sense when we're holding that cross and we made the first couple folds and it doesn't make any sense whatsoever, you can't see the end product, God removes the weapons of war from us so that we become peace-keeping people. But we're not going to get conquered by the world. It's so upside down from the way God does it. But there's one other piece of text in this thing that I need you to hear. So if I were thinking about it, I want you to go back to your high school moments for a second. And who was your big rivalry? The the team you hated. If you're the Seahawks, we're talking about the Green Bay Packers, right? Yeah. I can't. Dallas Cowboys. Okay. Back there. Who's the Dallas Cowboys big rival, though? Anybody? Okay, that doesn't work. There's one that makes you mad more than anybody else. So when I went to Hanford High in the Tri-Cities, it was the Richland Bombers. That was the team we wanted to fix. If you're here and you went to Colville, it's probably Freeman. Chawila? Is is Chawila really a rival for Colville or Colville a rival for Chawila? Do you understand what I'm saying? Lakeside. Okay, Lakeside, Colville. Okay, what's your high school? Who was your rival in Davenport? Reardon, absolutely. See, what if I told you that your big rival, what if you came into Cold War America and said this about the Russians? Then the surviving Philistines will worship our God and become like a clan in Judah. The Philistines of Ekron will join my people as the ancient Jebusites did, and I will guard my temple and protect it from the invading armies. I'm watching closely to ensure that no foreign oppressors overrun my people. Then he goes into the text about the donkey. The very first thing about that text that we miss is the rivalries between the nations, the worst rivalry, the oppressor from the past, the troublers of Israel, the Philistines, will be married in and become part of the tribe. So if you're Davenport, Reardon will become part of the tribe. Now that's kind of backwards, isn't it? Because Reardon's mascot is the tribe, or, or the Indians, but... If you're that day Israel, you're talking, when, when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, literally what he's saying is the Samaritans are really going to become part of you. They're going to get wedded in. What about the Romans? We hate them. No, after God does his work in them, they're going to become part of it. The hated people, the troublers, the rivals, the ones you don't like. That's what the Philistines in this text mean. The ones you don't like the most. The, the pe- those, those people from Lakeside. We're going to be good with them. Let's say, let's say you're Gonzaga. The, the team from St. Mary's, they're going to be your brothers and sisters. See, I'm just trying to make sure you understand what I'm talking about here. 
It's so upside down that the people you've been at war with for so long, you're going to get along because the part of the, of the war between you and them, it, let me tell you a secret. If I'm at war with somebody and they're at war with me and I stop being at war, half of the war is gone. If I lay down my arms and I go and become peaceful, and so Jesus says this, if you're going to come worship God and you have something against somebody, lay down your altar, lay down your, your, your sacrifice and go and be at peace with them. Because I'm going to remove the articles of war from my people. And they're going to become instruments of peace to the nations. Now what happens in Jerusalem when he does this sort of thing? Well, it's not the way we wanted it. We really wanted it this other way. Look, I'm going to tell you that when I came to Christ, if I had known where I was going to end up, I'm not sure I would have wanted it. But it's better than what I thought it was going to be. Look, sometimes I think he's just laughing about this, that Dave's a pastor. (laughs) I know there are other people laughing about it too. And if you were to ask my wife, this was the farthest thing from what could have possibly happened. The wisdom of God, the, the set it on the ear. Look, the wisdom, as 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, the wisdom of the world isn't God's way. Let me read this text from you, and then I'm going to close up. This is from 1 Corinthians 1. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed for destruction. Look, it's exactly like this. Has there been anybody in the room had lifesaver training for swim, for lifeguarding? You have. What's the most dangerous thing you can do as a lifeguard when you're, when you're saving somebody? It was a long time ago. Somebody said something over here. Drown. Why is drowning dangerous for the lifeguard when you're saving somebody? No, this is what they teach you, that if you're swimming out to somebody and they're drowning, you cannot get within arm's reach of them because you now, they're panicking and you saving them doesn't make any sense. All they want to do is get up. And they climb up you and they just and you go down and they hold you down because they're desperate and they don't know what's going on. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed for destruction. So what you do is you throw them a lifeline. If it's a pool, then you use one of those rods and you put it out to them and they grab that and you can pull them in. But if you get too close, they'll just climb up on, on top of you and you won't make it because they're not reasoning. But we who are being saved now know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. Now we talked about this in the last couple of weeks that if wisdom or our ability to to reason is the standard then then we start to use that as reasons why other people aren't doing it well they're not reasoning 
And we use it as a pride moment that we boast around our wisdom and our ability to think it through. But this is what he says. It is foolishness to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So we preach that Christ was crucified. The Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those who are called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You're coming down the hill and you're riding on a donkey or you're, you're seeing Jesus ride on the donkey and he's coming down the hill and you're doing it, but you've got a plan in mind, but it's not his plan. What happens to you when God's plan is different than yours? Do you say, crucify him? Or do you say, Lord, not my will, but yours? That's the question of Holy Week, if there's ever a question in my thing. It's this, is how will we respond when God's plan of salvation is not the way we wanted it? But it does better, we just don't see it yet. The salvation from sin is like this. There's a tradition there's a tradition that the hill of the skull, while shaped like a skull, was also the traditional place that they stored Goliath's head, or they put Goliath's head there because he was the troubler of Israel. It's a tradition. I don't know whether it's true or it's a tradition. Some traditions have some roots in truth and some don't. So when Jesus later on this week goes up that hill to kill the troubler of Israel, which is not a person. It's not another race. It's not your rival. It's not them. It's not them. It's sin inside your life. That's the main troubler. And if we can deal with that, then peace can have its root in our lives. But we can't deal with it. Only he can. And sometimes that means that the country isn't run the way we want it run, but we're still forgiven. And the Jews wouldn't accept it. And Jesus wept over them because to them, they wanted it their way. We are faced with the exact same decision now in the salvation of God. Are we going to take it God's way? Hosanna, save now. Or are we going to say, no, it's got to come my way. And if it doesn't come the way I want it, I'm not taking it. Try that with the doctor the next time you go there. Tell him what treatment you want. Hosanna, save now. When you're desperate, you don't care how it comes. Let's get desperate for God.